Hi, welcome to the Vine Church podcast. This week we've got a great speaker. Hope you enjoy it. Right, church, let's just take a seat. And we're just going to welcome up the, the preacher for today. But before we do that, just a reminder, if you have the, the Bible app on your phone, you can click on that and simply go to live events and you'll be able to follow the message and the sermon on there. But let's just give it up for Stuart Hanna as he comes to the stage this morning. Let's just give it up for him. Good morning. Right, that's not my notes. <laughs> Happy Father's Day, everybody. I like Father's Day. It's one of the good days, one of the good celebrations. You know, it's just like Mother's Day, except you don't have to spend quite as much on the present, eh? <laughs> Who needs a generosity revolution? Probably me. Okay, before I start, there's something I do need to get off my chest though. I hadn't intended to mention this and in fact I couldn't really see myself telling anybody about this but my family know about it. It's difficult to keep things hidden from the people that you share your life with. But a couple of weeks ago I did something. Something I've not done for 25 years. That's longer than I've been in the church. And something that I regretted the moment I did it. I went for a jog. Now, in my mind, I'd pictured a young gazelle, fleet of foot and nimbly negotiating the cycle path near our house. A lumbering, breathless, sweaty reality shattered that short-lived daydream. You see, I like the idea of being in shape. I like the idea of being energized. I like the idea of bounding up the stairs. I like the idea of having a six-pack instead of a beer barrel. But three minutes, okay, one minute into my jog, I started to find out about the cost that comes with change and the real pain that comes with transformation. Straight away, the thought came in. Is it really that bad being a wee bit out of shape? <laughs> a wee bit. <laughs> and that was followed closely by, nobody will know if you stop now. <laughs> so today we're continuing in the series, Generosity Revolution. And there is a cost that comes with transformation. There can be pain, but there's also the hope of great joy on the other side. The problem is, I always want to get there straight away. But it's a series of small, incremental, barely noticeable, consistent actions that take you from idealistic dreaming and into a new reality. It's the long haul. It's the slow, steady walk of faith that Paul would have talked about. It's the aggregate of increments, as us elite athletes call it. It's not all rock and roll, but I'm starting to like it. Embrace the discomfort, because it's good. Now, mentioning money is an uncomfortable subject in our society. Mentioning money in church is about as uncomfortable as it gets. Whoever has to do the tithing sermon once a year always has my deepest sympathies. 
We have an inbuilt cynicism in our country where someone explains why we should hand over money, especially if it's somebody in authority, and even more so if it's a preacher. But I'm not ashamed. This is no time to be shy because my private jet won't pay for itself, will it? I was joking. However, I suspect that we also react, particularly when it's money, because it's a subject that hits us all where we all live. But I want to be faithful to God's commands in all areas of my life, and that includes the areas of my finances, the area of my resources. So, does this work? Maybe. It's not working. Can I have the next slide on, please? Oh, there we go. The joy of giving. The title this morning, The Joy of Giving, it's Generosity Revolution Part 4. And it's the joy of giving. Joy, not duty, that I want to be talking about. The joy of giving. J-O-G. Joy of giving. Hopefully this will jog your memories later when you try and remember what on earth I was talking about yeah I know it's cheesy but if it's cheesy it'll stick you'll remember it I'll take one for the team on that I don't mind it's cheesy but it's true jog joy of giving and if we can flip that switch not only will it have an impact upon our lives not only will our lives be transformed but the lives of all those that we come into contact with can be transformed too. I've enjoyed this series. Aaron kicked us off with a couple of cracking quotes. I'll just go back to them. These were great, about three weeks ago. If all Christians acted like Christ, the world would be different. That's Mahatma Gandhi. Now, I love that. I've often thought that the most you should ever fear from a Christian fundamentalist or a Christian extremist is that one day they might give up their own life to save yours. If everybody acted like Christ, that's the kind of world we'd be in. Gain all you can, save all you can, give all you can, was another quote from John Wesley. And again, this is the opposite of the get all you can mantra that we get bombarded with. We then looked at Acts 2. Now, I've heard people get excited about this chapter many times since I became a Christian 20 years ago. I get pretty excited about myself. Imagine a community devoted to study and fellowship and prayer and communion. Imagine living in a supernatural community and seeing miraculous signs and wonders daily. Oh, I want some of that. Imagine being part of a community that enjoys the favor of all the people, privileged, honored. Imagine being in a church that was seeing salvations daily. Oh, yes. That sounds like revival. That sounds like transformation. Imagine going out today and selling all your possessions and giving them to anyone who has need. Boy. <laughs> Maybe I'm not quite through on that one. But real community though. Acts 2 church. See, we, we can't just cherry pick the good bits up to our level of submission. Jesus is looking for our all in every area of our lives. Now, going to ask you a favor. Could you stick with me for a bit today? Because I'm not going to give you three points and tell you what you must do. And really what I want to do is I want to look at a piece of scripture and explore some ideas. And if you consider these things 
and take them to God, I'm sure he'll show you what to do if you seek him humbly. But I'll leave it with you. So we're just going to look at some, some ideas. Next slide, please. Our scripture today is 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Now, please read through the scripture again this week. Marinate in it for a bit. Yeah, I said marinate, not meditate. Marinate is better because it sticks. You know? <laughs> marinate in this one for a bit. Soak it up. Think about it. I'll read it out though, but take a note of it and go back to it yourself in your own time. Okay, the collection for the Lord's people. This is 2 Corinthians 8, starting, beginning the chapter, verse 1. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy, their extreme poverty, welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people, and they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made the beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. And here's my judgment about what is best for you to do in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Our desire is that others might be relieved, is, sorry, our desire is not that others might be relieved while you're hard pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. So here's Paul. And he's pointing out the positive side of giving, the positive side of generosity. He also reminds the Corinthians of the connection between joy and generosity. I love the phrase that says, overflowing joy welled up in rich generosity. It's out of the overflow of this joy came the generosity. Jesus was quoted in Acts 20, verse 35. It is more blessed to give than to receive. I'm sure you've all heard that one. I was watching Rich House, Poor House this week, and it's one of those reality TV shows. Can we have the next slide on, please? Yeah, that's it, thanks. Brilliant. 
one of those reality TV shows, and it's maybe just a rung or two up the ladder from Love Island, but it's in that genre. But the setup is quite a simple one. There's one family from the richest 10% in the country and another one from the poorest 10%, and they swap lives and jobs and houses and disposable income for a week. And there was one moment, I've got the photograph behind me there, I've got my still. There was one moment when the young dad of five realized that he now had the disposable income of the rich dad. And he nipped out to buy his son a pair of football boots. Now this dad cycled several hours or several miles to work to do a night shift every night to provide for his family. And the son had previously had to get had to give up on football as there was nothing spare, not even for a pair of football boots. So when he called his son over and handed him the box, the look of excitement on the son's face, it was priceless. But the look on the dad's face as he watched his son confirmed to me that the greater joy is in the giving. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Anyway, 2 Corinthians 2, eh, 2 Corinthians 8. The background to this letter is very interesting. The church in Corinth had made a promise to give an offering to assist Christians back in Israel. But the Corinthians hadn't yet followed through on their promise. So possibly they're like many of us. It's a whole lot easier to talk the talk. But when it comes to fulfilling the promise, sometimes it's easier just to give them a body swerve. But instead of beating up the Corinthian church for not following through on their, their giving, Paul inspired them. See, that's, that's clever as well as gracious. Because people are better motivated to change, I believe, when they're inspired rather than when they're being guilt-tripped all the time. So how did Paul inspire the Corinthians? He shared how the church in Macedonia gave. And he basically told them that the motivation for their giving was love. And real giving, giving that carries with it power and influence and transformation, always involves love. So from the scripture, let's look at a few examples of how that love plays out in our giving. Can we have the next slide on, please? Yeah. First love is demonstrated in our giving when we give in spite of our circumstances. Now, why does it take love to give? I believe it's because love is a powerful motivation. And we often need powerful motivation <laughs> when it comes to giving. Because when it comes down to it, everything hinges on cash. The house you live in, the car you drive, the food on your table, the shoes on your children's feet, all require money. And a lot of people are living with less disposable income nowadays than perhaps in years gone by. When they mentioned the criteria for measuring the poorest 10% on the TV program, we were quite shocked. And I'm here amongst family and friends, so I could tell you why. It wasn't the small amount of uh, money that those people had available that shocked us. It was a realization that according to that criteria that had been set out in the program, we would have been in that same group of people for most years out of the last decade. So today, this is no lecture 
from the haves to the have-nots about what to do with your available resources. I know that when it comes to giving, it's very easy to give the reasons why you can't give. I know this. I've lived this. But it's important to remain generous. Because, well, incidentally, it's, it's not the amount that Jesus is looking for. It's the heart. And that's where the generosity lives. That's where it begins. So in Luke 21, Jesus looked up and he saw the rich dropping their offerings into the temple treasury. And he also saw a poor widow dropping in two tiny coins. Many of you know this story. But Jesus says, I tell you the truth. This poor widow has put more in than all of them. For all these people have put in gifts out of their surplus. But she gave out of her poverty and she's put in all she had to live on. Now in the scripture, Paul pointed out a church in Macedonia that didn't allow their circumstances to interfere with their giving. Now you might think, well, maybe their circumstances weren't that bad. But if you look in verse 2, Paul said they went through a very severe trial. Now we're not told specifically in that passage what they, what they were going through, but it would appear from reading previous chapters that there was significant persecution in the area. The Macedonians were also ex receive, uh, experiencing extreme poverty. Now, my understanding of the word that's used there to describe extreme poverty, it refers to when a, a beggar has absolutely nothing and has no hope of getting anything. That's the position, that's the condition the Macedonians were in. But this is what's incredible. They didn't use the circumstances as an excuse not to give. Now, how, how could that be possible? I believe it's because God gave them courage in spite of the circumstances, to step out in faith and give, you don't see them making any excuses. Now, the people of Macedonia could have made excuses for not giving, but they were willing to give in spite of the circumstances. Why would that be? I can only think it's when you've seen God move and change lives, it gives you the courage to trust Him. And when you start seeing God move, you want to see more of it. So if you want to see God move more, you have to trust Him with more. So then it doesn't appear as foolishness to give out of nothing, but utterly sensible in the context of trusting God. And our relationship to God becomes closer and our joy increases also. Verse 2 says this, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. I believe there's also joy when our eyes are on others, when we're not worried about ourselves and our circumstances because we trust in God. This creates a space. This trust creates a space for generosity. And we receive the joy of giving. And this is what Jesus means that it's better to give and to receive. So love is demonstrated by our giving when we give in spite of our circumstances. Love is also demonstrated by our giving when we give with enthusiasm. Give me a second. Now, the key section I want to look at here is verse 4. And it says, They urgently pleaded with us, as they begged, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. The church in Macedonia, which we've said is desperately poor, was begging Paul 
to let them give to the church in Israel. Now, it's incredible that these people were so enthusiastic because they're in a hopeless situation. They'd more than likely become outcasts in their community because of their faith. This would have caused them to be in really dire financial straits. And yet, they were eager to give. And this is what Jesus does in a person's life. He takes us from where we are and he gives us hope. And he takes people who are broken and enables them to be the people who can bring healing and hope to the lives of others. When you're given hope, when you're given a cure, the one thing you want to do is share it. You want to spread it around, right? Remember the poor widow? She's put in more than all of them. That's what Jesus said. She has put in more than all of them. For, she, for all these people have put in gifts out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, has put in all she had to live on. And it's hard to give with enthusiasm when you're hanging on too tight. How do I mean that? Well, has anybody here played golf? Does any? <laughs> that's about three folk admitting to it, four folk admitting to it. You'll have an interesting wardrobe then, that's the first thing. Right, so golf. Anyway, I have a distant memory of playing golf. I have a distant memory of having four hours spare many years ago. But the most frustrating sport, I think, golf, it has to be the most frustrating sport I've ever played. It's, it doesn't make sense. It's counterintuitive. If you want the ball to go further, one of the best things you can do is not to grip the, grip the club too tightly. You want to grip it lightly. Too much grip pressure puts tension in your arms and it prevents you from keeping your wrist cocked on the downswing and a tight grip encourages you to swing your hands and your arms instead of the big muscles in your lower body so this kills your swing before you've even begun so you have to hang loose and it's the same with your resources if you want them to go further and you want them to accomplish more you don't hold them too tightly. The Macedonian church was a great example because even though they didn't have much, they were willing to let that go. So why were they willing to release what they had? Because of love, sacrificial love. It says here in verse 5, they gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God to us also. They were submitted in love. Their giving, our giving as well, demonstrates what we love. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Correct. So no matter what we have, we always give to the things that we love most. Aaron picked up on this one last week, and I'm glad that some people were listening. When you love God and you love your neighbor, you give to God and you give to your neighbor. Love is demonstrated by our giving when we give in spite of our circumstances. Love is demonstrated when we give with enthusiasm. Finally, love is demonstrated in our giving when we follow through on our commitment, on our promise. Paul's advice in verse 10 is to finish what you've begun. 
And here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. So Paul was giving advice on giving. He reminded us that giving must also come from a willing heart. It can't be coerced or forced. This is important. He says himself in verse 8, I'm not commanding you. Paul doesn't want them simply to give, but to desire to give. It's a condition of the heart. Desire prepares us for giving, and he then encouraged them to follow through and turn their desire into an action, into a contribution. He says in verse 11, finish the task as well, that just as there was eagerness to desire it, there might also be completion from what you have. So a desire to help isn't enough. In modern day business speak, we have to deliver. But willingness and desire are never substitutes for doing. Many people make good, noble resolutions, but never follow through on them. And I think we all know the phrase, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. But Paul's advice was to immediately put into action the desire that God had placed in their hearts. So if God's speaking to us individually or corporately here, there's an action that we must do. Let's do it quickly. Let's do it immediately. Let's act. Let's act in obedience to the call of God in our lives. Verse 12 encourages the Corinthians to give according to their desire and means. It says, for if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has not according to what one does not have. That's interesting. God doesn't expect us to give what we don't have. We are expected to give according to your ability. Now, I regularly daydream. If I was a millionaire, if I won the lot, you've got to play it first, haven't you? <laughs> but if I, if I won the lottery, I'd do this, and I'd do this, and I'd do this. And I'll be honest, since we started doing this series, I've had that daydream more and more over the last few weeks even this week, but here's the deal. God's not concerned with what I would do if I had a million, but what I do with what I have now. So it's not so much about the amount that I give, it's, it's the heart that I give it with. And when we've given willingly according to what we have, we've practiced our faith, we've practiced love, we've followed through on the intention. Faith is mixed up in giving too. The only way you'll discover God's blessings and faithfulness in giving is when you give. If we adopt a lifestyle where we give, we discover that giving is worth it. But we only discover this when we give. And it's so powerful that it won't matter what our circumstances are. It's so power that we'll be enthusiastic about it. It's so powerful that we'll continue to follow through on our giving when our hearts have been transformed with generosity. I'm coming to realize that there's nothing greater I can invest in than the purposes of God. And the simplest way to do this is to invest in the people of God. And the easiest way to do this is to give into the local church, the bride of Christ, and his hands and feet in our community and around the world. Now that's really where I intended to leave things today. Just think it all through, read the scripture, consider it prayerfully. Ask the Holy Spirit to shape your desires, to form your intentions, to guide your steps as you follow through in your giving.
And my prayer is that we all live in the joy and the deep fulfillment of giving. However, I want to leave you with a couple of other thoughts also. We've looked at verses 1 to 12. Now, to a great extent, these deal with transformation or change in our own lives. Personal transformation, of course, is one of the key objectives of any preacher of the gospel. But something leapt out at me a couple of weeks ago when I read verses 13 and 14. So I'll read these again. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. That's a word again. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Can I get the next slide, please? So here in the Bible is the antidote to a rich house, poor house society. And I'd never seen it so clearly written. It read to me almost like a, a manifesto for the transformation of society. Our desire is that there may be equality. The goal is equality. I read it again. And in the news this week, there was a report about the pay gap, another inequality, between the average worker and the top executive in your normal British companies. And the viewer, after the spokesperson had been talking about the need to change and reform how things are done, and to, the, the interviewer asked the spokesperson, says, but who can decide what gap is acceptable? How would you even begin to legislate that? Surely you can't expect some sort of egalitarian utopia. I thought, ah, you've got a point there, mate. And here's the thing. Over and over throughout history, humankind has tried to legislate, to create, to force equality. And every time we've come up short, how often have well-intentioned socialist revolutions ended up in controlling totalitarian dogmas or worse still, brutal and murderous regimes. Countries all over the world, people all over the world are still living with a cultural hangover from these experiments. It's almost like every good intention we put our hands on, we end up crushing and squeezing the life out of it. Can we force equality? I don't think so. I don't think we can legislate or quantify a generous spirit. It's a bit like the golf club analogy again. Let's not crush it. There's something beautiful in there, this notion of fairness. But let's not crush it. We have to hold things lightly, not tightly. The emphasis on equality in our modern ears also raises the notions of socialism and all manner of left-leaning political agendas, which I'm not going to get into today. But we must remember that even the most recent biblical documents 
predate by about 1600 years our notions of capitalism or communism or socialism. The Bible was written way before all of that. So these ideas are coming from a completely different place to what we think when we hear some of these words. Now I'm paraphrasing something that I read in a book called Revolution and Generosity by a guy called Wesley Wilmer. But he also reckons this. He says along the lines of, the biblical principle implies that there's certain levels of wealth and certain levels of poverty that are inherently wrong. Now see, it's a morality issue rather than a political one. That means I'm allowed to talk about it in church. But the levels of poverty and wealth are not strictly quantified in the Bible, but numerous texts make it clear that there is such a thing as a person that has too much, materially speaking, as well as a person that has too little. Perhaps the band could make their way up. We're going to be finishing shortly. But 2 Corinthians 8, 13 to 15 puts it plainly. It says, Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you're hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much. The one who gathered little did not have too little. But the word equality is probably not the best translation of the Greek word. The Greek word is, I understand, isotis, which means more, it's more like fairness or fairness of treatment. That may be a better rewording here. So Wilmer says this also, that this does not represent what in modern times would be promoted as a socialist agenda. It's clear from Paul's quotation of the scripture in Exodus, the account of the Israelites when they collected manna in the wilderness. Different individuals and different families had varying needs and varying abilities to gather this supernaturally provided bread. Yet God ensured that no one had too much or too little. So apart from such miracles in the New Testament age, the voluntary, this is a key word, the voluntary sharing of one's surplus goods accomplishes the same thing as what God achieved with the manna in the desert. The voluntary sharing of one's surplus goods. So the end result is not that we'd all have the same amount, that kind of equality, because how would that be possible or sustainable at any one moment in time? How could we all have exactly the same? That can't be. But the, the, the goal is fairness. Those who have more than an average amount would share generously with those who have less in order to moderate the extreme disparities between the haves and the have-nots. So the Christian vision here, to wrap it up, the Christian vision is one of sharing voluntarily but out of deep compassion. What a great idea. So the way to tackle inequality, unfairness in society is not by force, not by laws and rules, or even by guilt-tripping or emotional blackmail. The route to a transformed society is transformed individuals like you and me, inspired and motivated by love, sharing our time, our energy, our resources, enthusiastically giving, stepping out in faith and acting even when we have nothing, holding on to God, looking forward in the hope of greater joy to come 
and inspiring others to do the same. I hope that's made sense today. I hope you've been lifted up and inspired rather than beaten into agreement with me. And I hope you'll follow through on reading up today's passage and by seeking God's will in the area of giving and committing to his individual call on your lives too. God bless you and thanks for listening. Thanks, Stuart. Thank you for your generosity and your heart. It's always a, it's a joy when someone pours out and spends a lot of time in God and gives us the richness of the, uh, what they've received. So thanks, Stuart. That was great. Let's just stand and sing Build My Life Together. He's so worthy, so generous to us.